This is a diet of Brussels. Uh, today we're coming from uh, France, from Angers, where I've been talking with academics, politicians, civil servants, businessmen uh, in uh, the region about the impact of Brexit on them. And for me, that's been a really uh, interesting experience because it's taken me out of the British debate into a wider debate and has really highlighted for me uh, a number of key points that I think are, are useful to consider in all of this. Because Brexit typically, you know, and certainly we've done that with this podcast, has been about the UK and, and what it means for for Britain. But it also clearly has deep, profound consequences for the rest of the EU in very different and unique ways. And what perhaps it is useful here is to, to think a bit about how that works and drawing on the insights that we've had from uh, this event, uh, I think you know we can we can generate some really useful ideas uh, in all of this. Really, uh, the key thing for me was that whatever happens in the Brexit process, the UK and Europe remain connected. That the UK doesn't suddenly disappear in a cloud of smoke any more than Europe suddenly disappears in a cloud of smoke. That both will be there geographically, politically, economically, socially, in a way that is literally unavoidable. That we need to think a bit about the uh, the connections that uh, need to exist, that will exist, that might exist in all of this. And part of that, I think, really came out of the theme of borders, which was understandably very present for uh, people here in the Pays Loire, who were thinking very much about Brexit in terms of reduction in access. That for them, Brexit is essentially about barriers to trade, barriers to movement, and a reduction in opportunities, a reduction in options uh, for them. But importantly, in all of that, I think we have to remember that borders have two sides, that uh, what we choose to do doesn't necessarily mean that that's what they choose to do as well. And for me, that was really brought home by the director of the port of Nantes-Nazaire, who was talking about how they had put into place a, a whole plan of activities and actions which meant that they would be ready on the 29th of March for an ideal Brexit. But equally importantly for them, one of the problems was that they relied on having a European uh, partner, a UK partner actually, uh, someone with whom they could establish new links. And, you know, that's fairly obvious in the case of a port, that it's all very well being a port that is ready, but if you don't have other ports that are ready, then you don't have anyone to trade with. And I think as a general principle, this really highlights the way in which uh, borders matter, in which connections matter in all of this. 
Now, I think here we have really a real issue that uh, the way in which the, the UK has uh, approached Brexit has been uh, to see it in very zero-sum terms. That if the UK is losing, which is the predominant view, that then therefore the UK, uh, the EU rather, should be winning. And uh, this really is a, a very unhelpful kind of concept. Uh, as we've talked about on this podcast uh, at several points, Brexit is not zero-sum. It's not that my loss is your gain and vice versa. Rather, it is a negative-sum game that uh, everyone is losing. And the question is quite how people lose and how much uh, they lose uh, and what they will do when they find out that they lose. And really, one of the real difficulties in the British debate is this unwillingness to accept that this is... uh, economically, certainly, but probably also politically uh, a negative-sum game, that losses are there for everyone, and really it's about managing losses rather than uh, discovering gains. This matters, uh, and it was really brought home to me uh, by uh, the debates that we've had today, in the sense of uh, how... Uh, people act that you know we look for rationality that people look to 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 maximize benefit in what they choose to do they assume perhaps not unreasonably that others seek to maximize benefit the difficulty is is that the UK doesn't have a path which leads to clear benefit you know we fixate very much on things like the capacity to conclude free trade agreements with the rest of the world or to be free of EU regulation, but without thinking about the commensurate costs that come with that. And so uh, this causes a problem, not just for the UK, but also for European partners, that if the UK does approach this in a a, a zero-sum sense, it makes it much harder to work through the difficulties and the problems that this process creates. Ultimately, this is a process that produces no winners. It produces uh, a collection of parties on the European and the British side who lose out. And really it's about that uh, minimization of cost, the management of cost, the representation of cost that I think we will find the the key uh, elements of uh, what is happening now and what has happened and what will happen in the coming years. Now that matters because if we accept that there necessarily has to be a relationship, then I think on the one hand we have to understand that there needs to be cooperation, there needs to be some kind of link, that we can't simply ignore each other and assume that in our blind ignorance uh, or indifference things will happen, that actually it requires something to happen, that then I think we also need to recognize that there is a need for action on our own part. What was striking about the view from business, from uh, 
official agencies, from the government, was that preparation matters, that you can't assume that everything will be all right, or, more importantly, that somebody will look after you. And here I think we come to the, the crux of the, uh, the problems around the, the practicalities of Brexit. Uh, I didn't use quite the phrase uh, that I'm going to here, but nobody is going to wipe your ass on Brexit. That there are things that governments can do, that authorities can do, but almost certainly that will not be enough to cover the gap between where you are now and where you might be in this process. So we know uh, here in France, and we saw some very compelling uh, data about that, that a lot of uh, small and medium-sized companies are simply not prepared for Brexit. It seems like a general issue, maybe something we should think about, but not really a sense of the ways in which it intersects with the business model uh, and practice. Just as, actually, we have the same kind of issue in the UK, that uh, most places have some kind of con contingency plan, but not necessarily one that they have implemented. And uh, this really speaks, I think, to the danger of uh, a no-deal scenario, that it's all well and good to say, yes, there'll be disruption, but if you haven't planned how you're going to manage that disruption, whatever it may look like, then the disruption will become all the larger. Now, uh, for me, I think that really uh, highlights, once again, one of the key insights from negotiation theory that we've talked about before, which is that you can't rely on other people which might seem a rather uh, pessimistic or negative view of the world, but in practical terms, it's how things are. That uh, there are things you can do, uh, there are preparations and precautions you can take, but if they rely on other people, if you can't be sure that they will do what they say they will do, then you have a problem. And here, really, I think we, we hit the nub of the issue. So one of the things is uh, that you have to make the preparations and the plans and the implementation of those plans that you can. So to take a, an example that, that was presented to us today was uh, again the, the port of uh, Nantes-Nazaire talking about the actions that they had taken which they had under their control. So ensuring that there were the structures, uh, the built environment, in order to cope with potentially a big increase in traffic. So for them, uh, based round on the other side of uh, Brittany, they've really suffered from the liberalization of movement uh, between the UK and uh, the rest of the EU, because a lot of traffic goes through Dover and Calais. But if that becomes more difficult, as you might expect in a no-deal scenario, then there might be more incentives to direct traffic through other ports. And uh, for them, uh, based on the Atlantic coast, that really offers opportunities. So that They're talking about new routes to Dublin and to Liverpool to allow a bypassing of the UK uh, that might potentially 
be a substantial very trade uh, a substantial trade route but again that requires cooperation from ports in Ireland and from UK it requires cooperation with customs authorities uh, and we heard from uh, a customs official who was talking about the recruitment of new agents but real problems uh, around making sure that there were enough people who knew uh, enough uh, about how to deal with third country imports to police uh, those kind of bodies dealing with emergency situations dealing with the whole change of practice that this uh, involves so even in what might seem a relatively constrained case like a port uh, ports don't act by themselves they act in conjunction with authorities with uh, operators uh, many of whom are not yet in a position to uh, act in a relatively uh, painless kind of way in a new environment. At the same time, what's striking uh, for me is that there is uh, a real problem in all of this. Uh, one of the th key barriers for me in putting together uh, contingency plans for No Deal is that there is profound uncertainty about where this all goes. So as we've discussed several times uh, here, uh, the UK doesn't have a consensus about where Brexit is heading. What's the purpose of the whole exercise? Yes, we have lots of people who talk about this and about that and that model and that uh, approach. And, you know, we do it this way, we do it that way. But that's not nearly the same as a consensus uh, around the whole thing. And that's problematic for economic operators because potentially they are putting up very substantial investments in infrastructure, in uh, buying new companies and changing practices for something that may or may not happen. And if you're not sure what's going to happen, then it's like perhaps understandable that you say, well, we might just wait a bit and see what uh, comes down the line. The problem at this stage is that here we are uh, some 50-odd days out from Brexit and uh, there's not really very much time, should it all go belly up, to put in uh, to effect that contingency plan. So uh, there's a tension here that... Uh, whatever you choose to do, you run the risk of either wasting money or missing the opportunity to make plans effective. And given the profound uh, indecision in the British system about uh, where we might go from here, from leaving to uh, a new relationship, and again, thinking about this idea that there necessarily must be a relationship, uh, you can start to see some of the problems uh, that are uh, involved. Now, uh, as we've talked about uh, different uh, cases here in France, uh, I think perhaps one of the things that strikes me is that there is a lot of interconnection, that we, we might start in one sector 
say, manufacturing industry or financial services or fisheries or transport. Uh, but very quickly, we end up in generic and cross-cutting issues. And again, for the UK, one of the uncertainties is that this is not simply a matter of loss of market access, as it is for EU uh, operators and countries. Instead, for the UK, it is about a disruption of market access coupled to a change in the entire structure and the practice of economic activity. So that might involve a change in freedom of movement, which has implications for your work stuff. It might be something that has uh, implications for the way in which you do business in terms of uh, regulations and standards. In effect, everything that British businesses and uh, economic agents do is going to be changed in some way and quite problematically in ways that are not immediately obvious. So to take uh, uh, an example, we might think about the way in which processes rely on a very large number of steps and all you need then is one of those steps to become problematized by leaving the EU. So the example that's been quite present for me in the last week or so is abattoirs. And I'm sure you think about abattoirs quite often, uh, uh, just as I do now. Now, one of the things we, we know is that there is a requirement that you have uh, vets and uh, officials who can sign off to ensure that standards are met. Now, at the moment, in the UK, most of those officials come from the EU. There are very few who are UK nationals uh, and who uh, come through uh, the British system. Now, that's problematic because if we end up with a situation where there is non-recognition of qualifications, which would happen if there's a no-deal Brexit or if we have some kind of limitation on uh, a deal, then suddenly we find ourselves in a situation where most of the abattoirs in the UK are unable to conduct their business because not only are there no UK nationals who are trained and certified to uh, do the business of ensuring standards, but also we don't even have a body that is capable of certifying those people. So again, we can think here about the interconnectedness of the entire system, that uh, it only takes one step to be out of line that is uh, then a problem. And again, this is really where we come to the issues around the supply chains for manufacturing, for food, uh, and their concerns around delays at the border. The very small delays we know produce very large uh, problems at crossing borders because uh, it only takes uh, a number of minutes, even seconds of delay on any one consignment to suddenly generate uh, tailbacks of many miles. All of this really comes together for me in a notion of 
creative destruction. Now, this is an idea from Joseph Schumpeter and was invoked uh, a couple of times in the conference that uh, clearly from the outside, this looks like a process of uh, destruction of the UK's position, but simultaneously creating opportunities for French businesses to come in and improve their position either in relation to the UK market or in relation to the EU market because they're deprived of competition. Ultimately, what I think the evidence points to is, is that Brexit is not the end of the world, even in its hardest no-deal uh, formulation, but it is a major disruption and shock to the British system and, by extension, to the European economy. And with that in mind, that suddenly creates changes in opportunities for others. So we talked uh, in the conference today about fisheries as a good example. Now, one of the consequences of closing British fisheries to French fishermen is that potentially you end up with knock-on effects. So it's not just about the lack of access that uh, EU fishermen uh, have to UK waters. It's also about what do other fishermen do. So we know, for example, that the Belgian uh, fleet, which is relatively small, about 70 uh, vessels, uh, fishes almost entirely in British waters. Now, they won't fish there anymore but where will they go will they come around to the bay de seine will they come around to the bay of biscay uh wherever they go they disrupt the patterns that are there uh, already and that has knock-on effects down the coast so one of the effects that we might see in the pays de loire uh here in uh, the west of France is we might see some effects as fishermen kind of get shunted round the system trying to find a, a new equilibrium. Similarly in terms of manufacturing industry, agriculture, higher education, the restrictions on the UK market, the impact on the UK market has an effect on the French local regional market as well. And all of this creates opportunities uh, that potentially are beneficial to those operators. All of this, I think, for me, comes together in uh, a notion of connection and connectedness. Brexit is not simply a British phenomenon, and I've talked about this uh, at various points, but usually in the sense of, you know, the, the factors that drove the referendum result, uh, be that the structure of public opinion, the media coverage, the ambivalence around European integration from politicians, all of those things you can find elsewhere. But here, I think I want to stress more the effects of Brexit. The Brexit is not simply a British problem. It's not something that will have effects that are limited and constrained to the UK. However this proceeds, 
there will be costs and there will be costs on the European side as well. That the integration that has taken place over the past four or more decades of integration and of, Europe, of UK particip participation in this process ultimately uh, brings costs to European non-UK operators. So in understanding this, I think it's really important to recognize that this is not solely about what happens within the territory of the UK, of U UK operators. It's also about uh, uh, European, uh, EU operators and uh, states who are going to feel the consequences of this, not just immediately in uh, the short term, but also in the longer term as well. With all of that in mind, the challenges and the concern around what comes next obviously remains high. There was a clear note of concern about where Brexit goes, not just in terms of self-interest, but also in terms of a sense of solidarity that the UK remains a European state and that uh, contact and relations will uh, be maintained and managed uh, through the, the post-EU uh, phase. So there really is a concern uh, that is there that I think is going to be more and more interesting to people and something that I think we will find ourselves discussing many more times in the months and indeed years to come.